The reading this morning comes from the 12th chapter of Mark, verses 35 to 44. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christmas because um, everybody was gone. Our kids were all elsewhere and doing other things. And so we went for a long walk in spring-like weather and then we went and saw Star Wars. It was a great Christmas day. Love being with the kids, but that was pretty good too. Um, And as I got thinking about Christmas this week, I was thinking that, you know, I've heard that Christmas is probably the most celebrated holiday in all the world. Uh, Just about every place in the world, there's somebody celebrating the holiday of Christmas. So I was looking online at some of these different ways that Christmas is celebrated. Uh, For instance, in Finland, I understand that on Christmas Eve, it's common that they will go to the sauna on Christmas Eve as part of their Christmas celebration. There's an idea for you next year. Take your family and I'll gather at the sauna. I probably won't do that. This idea of intentionally sweating, I just, I don't get the thrill of it. Um, And on Christmas Day, it's common Finnish people will go visit grave sites of their loved ones. That's as part of the celebration. Another common thing that they'll do is they'll gather together as a family for the, the reading of the Declaration of the Christmas Peace. And so I was looking into that a little, and what it is is that city officials will come out in several of the cities around Finland, and they have this declaration that's traditional that they will read on Christmas Eve. And here's how the declaration goes. Tomorrow, God willing, is the graceful celebration of the birth of our Lord and Savior, and thus is declared a peaceful Christmas time to all by advising devotion and to behave otherwise quietly and peacefully because he who breaks the peace and violates the peace of Christmas by any illegal or improper behavior 
shall under aggravating circumstances be guilty and punished according to what the law and statutes prescribe for each and every offense separately. Have a great Christmas, and if you mess it up, you're in big trouble. And then it ends with, finally, a joyous Christmas feast is wished to all inhabitants of the city. So they all gather together, and they hear that reading, and they sing a few songs, and it's a wonderful beginning to their Christmas. As we read in Australia, it sounds like their Christmas celebrations pretty similar to ours. I think it's probably that British background, pretty similar Christmas celebration. But like in many parts of the world, their Christmas comes in the middle of summer. So I understand that uh, Christmas celebrations often include outdoor barbecues and trip to the beach. You may want to incorporate that one into your Christmas celebration. Uh, in Greenland, I understand that it's common on Christmas Eve that the men will help prepare the meal for Christmas Eve, and then the men will serve the women. Uh, I don't know if that's the only day of the year they do it, but on Christmas Eve they do that. So again, that might be a tradition you want to consider. In Ukraine, uh, Christmas, like in many countries where the Orthodox Church is dominant, uh, they celebrate Christmas on January 7th. So on Christmas Eve, on January 6th, it's common that people will fast all day in preparation for Christmas. They'll come together for a Christmas Eve service, much like we do. And then they'll go home for a traditional Christmas Eve dinner, and it's a 12-course meal that is prepared. Uh, and they don't begin the meal, the breaking of the fast, and begin that meal until the first star is seen in the night sky. So they said it's common that children will go outside and look into the sky and wait to see that first star so they can run in and break the fast and have that wonderful meal. Lots of different uh, traditions around Christmas, and lots of people who just love to celebrate Christmas just like we do. Matter of fact, even people who would reject a lot of the kind of core tenets of what we believe are central to Christmas, of, of Christianity, will still celebrate Christmas, will still love the holiday. And a lot of those people will not just love the things like the, the beautiful lights and decorations and love the giving of gifts and receiving of gifts, but will even still love the Christmas story. Even though maybe not believe in it as we do, we'll still love that story. There's there's a lot of people that get behind and affirm the idea that there was a, a child born on this quiet night in these difficult circumstances and that this child was blessed and, and was specially loved. That they can get behind that idea of a little baby that's special in some way. Many can get behind the idea of, of that child growing up to be this man who was a, a good and wise teacher. A man who loved the poor and cared for the outcast. Can get behind and support that are fine with that idea. Can even get behind the idea that he was somebody who challenged uh, the religious establishment of the time, was one who spoke out against hypocrisy. Again, many will join us in celebrating those things, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with the fact that people who may not agree with all that I would say about who Jesus is, that they can still celebrate those things, those good things about him, can join us in celebrating those things. But often where we'll part ways, is when we say Jesus was not only a special child uh, born on that unique night, that he was not only one who was a wise and good teacher who was unique in the way he loved and the way he cared for the outcast and the way he challenged hypocrisy, but he's also Lord. He's also the one who is worthy of our full devotion. He's also the King of Kings. He's the one to whom we'd, we should submit our very being, the one who we should bow before and worship. Many times, People will agree with much, but we part ways there. As we come to the passage today, 
Um, Jesus has come into Jerusalem and come to the temple. And Mark tells us several stories of him interacting with people in the temple, religious leaders of the day. So he tells us first about him interacting with the Pharisees and the Herodians. So a religious group and a political group have come together to ask him some questions. And then we're told the Sadducees come up and ask him some questions. And then we're told a teacher of the law, probably a scribe, comes up just one man then and asks him a question. So we get these series of questions leading up to the passage today. Each one, in a sense, trying to challenge who Jesus really was. So those first two are are really challenging him. Literally looks like they're trying to trap him. They're not asking questions because they really want the answers. They're asking questions because they want to expose him in some ways as a fraud. They want to put him in a position where he's really stuck to give an answer and hopefully will discredit him before his followers or get him in trouble with the Roman authorities. So they ask him questions about who they should give taxes to and about the resurrection and about marriage in heaven. They ask him those questions hoping to trap him. But then we're told that this, this third, this man comes, this one teacher of the law, and he asks him a question. And this time it seems like the question's a sincere question. He's really not trying to trap him. He really wants an answer. And he asks the question, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And then Jesus gives that answer that most of you are familiar with. Jesus answers and says, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And that teacher then affirms that answer, says, you've answered rightly. That's a great answer. Again, it was a common debate, it sounds like, among rabbis of that time. would debate, what is the greatest commandment? How do we sum up the law? And this this teacher of the law says, Jesus, that's a good answer. That's a right answer. So he kind of assumes a position of, I'm the one still checking you out. I want, it, I want honestly to listen to you. I care about your answer, but I'm still the one who's checking you out. And I've decided, yes, I can affirm that. You've, you've answered pretty well. You are a good and wise man. But Jesus kind of turns the tables on him. Again, says he gave a wise answer, a wise response. So this man's in a position of judging Jesus' answer. Well, Jesus steps back and has authority over him and judges his answer and says it's good. And then he says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. It's a good answer. It's good that you see the wisdom in my answer. And you're not far from the kingdom of God. Not quite there. You don't quite get who I am. But boy, you're, you're approaching me in a way that truly is seeking, truly getting something that's true. You understand the wisdom in what I'm saying and my knowledge of, of God's word. What's true throughout this story leading up to the passage we're going to look at today is that every one of these people approached Jesus and asked questions. And even this good man, when he asked the question, never did fully get who Jesus was, who it was they were standing before. These people who studied the word of God, knew it well, memorized much of it. These people stood before Jesus and still didn't fully understand. Despite his pure character, Despite his incredible wisdom, I'm sure they heard the stories of his miraculous acts, and they still didn't get it, who stood before him. Even the one who was close, all he understood was, this is, this is a wise man. This is maybe a really smart rabbi, a good man who stands before me. And then we come to today's passage. So beginning in verse 35 of Mark chapter 12. 
We read, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, and I love that little side note there where Jesus affirms the inspiration of Scripture. David himself, when David wrote that psalm, he was speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And David himself, you, you rabbis, you all understand, you teachers of the law, I'm losing my mic, I guess I'm on this mic, you teachers of the law, um, you understand that the, the Messiah, the promised one, this, this new leader of Israel, this savior of Israel, is going to be a descendant of David. You've all read the scriptures and studied the scriptures, and you understand that. You say that openly. But then, how, is, how do you say that? What do you do with this, then? Where, where David himself, so David, who's talking about his own descendant, David himself says, this one will be my Lord. The phrase he quotes there from uh, Psalm 110 says, The Lord said to my Lord. So the first word Lord there is Yahweh. So Yahweh said to my Lord, to Adonai. God said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. How is it David, who, who is going to have this descendant, this son of David, someone who's going to come from his line, who will someday be raised up to be this king of Israel that you're all waiting for, how is it that David calls that descendant his Lord? Because that is not the way somebody of that day would speak about a descendant. They would never speak of them as their Lord, as their master. What do you do with that? You're asking all these questions. Why are you not asking that question? What does that mean? Who is it you're really looking to, for to come? What is that person going to be like? Who are they going to be? You're looking for a man like David. You're looking for a great king. But have you even paid attention to what David said about this one who will someday come? That he'll even be his Lord. And then he looks around, and he looks around at these religious leaders. So he's speaking to this group of people in the temple courts. And he looks around at these religious leaders. Probably many of them have been asking these questions of him. And I think he in some ways says, and here's why they're not asking those questions. Here's why they don't care about that. Because look at them. Look at them, they walk about in their flowing robes. They're dressed in the very best, and in a way that they want to stand out and be noticed. They go to the marketplaces, and they can't wait to be greeted with respect. They want to be the people that others admire and all of. They're the people that, it goes on and says, that they have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They love to be the people who are treated with privilege and prestige. They love to be the people that have power. He says they'll even devour widows' houses. Not sure exactly what that means they do, but it sure means somehow to keep their position, they're taking advantage of the least of the least of the poorest. Uh, they're stepping on their backs to have this position of power and prestige. Matter of fact, they will even make lengthy prayers. They will even take advantage of this incredible gift of being able to speak to God. And they will only use it instead of as an approach to God to win the respect and to win the admiration of people. They will do anything to hold on to being people of privilege and being people of prestige, being people who admire, being people who have the best possessions and the best things and look the best. They will do anything to have that. Um, why are they not asking this question, who is Lord? Because I don't think they want to find a Lord. Because they want to be the people of position 
who are admired, who are followed. They're not looking for someone to follow. They're looking for someone who will follow them. They're looking for a king like David who will fight the Romans and will free Israel and put them back into a position of power. But they want for themselves what they would expect a king would want. Just like a king, they expect to be someone who's going to use his power and his control to gain for himself. They want to use any power and control they can find to gain for themselves. In a sense, they want to be like the kind of king they want to follow. If it's best for him, it's also best for them. I look at these religious leaders that Jesus talks about, and it's easy to condemn. We, we talk about Pharisees and Sadducees and all, and boy, they are the guys in black cloaks and the evil people. And it's easy to really say, look at those horrible hypocrites. But this week, as I was looking at this passage and thinking about it, I thought, um, it really is easy to stop and think about uh, how much like them I am if I really reflect on it. I'm someone who a lot of times believes that the life of more, the life of better, is a life that has more respect from others, that people would look at me and think well of me. The life of more is being the one who, who has the best stuff or accomplishes the best things. The life of more is being somebody who, who is, is lifted up in the eyes of other people. That's a good life. That's a life of more. When I think of the life I want for my children, for my grandchildren, a lot of times the life of more that I hope for them is a life where they accomplish things that others will respect and others will think well of. They have the best stuff and they live a life of comfort. That's the kind of life I think is a life of more, a life of best. I want for them what I want for myself, the best. Well, these religious leaders, they said, this is more. So that's what I want for me, and, and if you want more, follow me. This is the life of more. Matter of fact, we expect a king to come someday who will be a king who calls it more. More is more power and more control and more prestige, having more for himself. That's what more is. The life of more, a full life, a complete life, is a life of power and prestige. I've been reading recently a book by a theologian, British theologian called Michael Reeves. Um, in it, he talks about uh, this kind of new wave of new atheism uh, that's kind of taken root in the Western world. And he talks about the fact that in this new atheism, they're not just um, arguing that there is no God, even though they still argue that, but there's also this argument that you should not want there to be a God. If you really stop and think about it, why in the world are you all fighting to believe there's a God? Because that would be a really bad thing if there was truly the God you talk about. And he says, the one thing I agree with of these people and this leaders in this new atheism is that they say, because if there is a God, if there is a creator of all, he would be ruler over all. He would be all powerful and all knowing. He'd be the creator. Why do you want a person like that over you? He quotes from uh, one of the leaders in this new atheism, Christopher Hitchens. In an interview, he said this, I think it would be rather awful if it were true, if there was a permanent, total, round-the-clock, divine supervision and invigilation of everything you did. You would never have a waking or sleeping moment when you weren't being watched and controlled and supervised by some celestial entity from the moment of your conception to the moment of your death. It'd be like living in North Korea. Why do you want that? 
Why do you want someone watching over you all the time who has power and control over you? Why are you guys fighting to believe that? That is such a horrible reality. Give up on it. What Hitchens and his uh, fellow atheists, I think, seem to believe is that anyone who has power, anyone who has control, is always going to use it in selfish ways. That's, that's what power does. Look around you, every example of it. Even at its very best, selfishness is still woven into it. Can't imagine anything but that. And honestly, I don't think they're far off in that. They're not far off in their understanding of what power does to us. Matter of fact, when the, when the people of Israel wanted a king to be like the nations around them, remember? They came to Samuel and they said, we want a king. We want a human king, just like all the other nations. And Samuel tried to tell them, no, it's not the best path. It's not the path God wants for you. But they demanded it. They wanted it. And finally, God relented and told them they could have their king. Matter of fact, in God's grace, even, he even helps them pick the best possible king for them. To, he helps them do what they really shouldn't have done, which was a rejection of him as their king. And still, he helps them to pick the best king they can pick. But he warns them this in 1 Samuel 8. He says, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. You want, a, you want a human king? Even at their very best, a human king is going to use his power and his rule in a way that's going to serve him before you. Even at their best. That's what human beings do. Even at our very best, selfishness is still woven into our being. It's still a part of who we are. And, and Reeves is saying that these new atheists cannot imagine a king, a god, a ruler who's any different than that because it's what all rulers are. But he goes on to write this. He says, They fail to see how radically and overwhelmingly different is the God of the Bible. Not needy, not solitary and selfish, but bountiful, loving and self-giving at the very heart of who he is. God is a ruler who is different, who stands above, who stands apart from all other kings. He is the king of kings. Not superior in the sense that he has more of the same. Not different in the sense that he just has more than every other king. He is more powerful. He is more wise. But he's different. He's unique in the sense that he is a God who eternally, for all eternity, has lived in loving, intimate relationship within himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is a God at the very core of his being is a self-giving love, an other-centered, self-giving love. It's, it's, it's how he exists. It's who he is. He is greater, he is more, he's better. But in ways that we often don't consider more or better. 
It's not what we think more means a lot of times. To be more is to be more love. To be more is to be more sacrifice. To be more is to give. To be more is humility. It's not how we picture more. And as Jesus stood before these religious leaders, it's not how they pictured more. They didn't think of more as being somebody who, when when they looked at Jesus, this is not a great ruler. This is not what greatness looks like. They couldn't even begin to imagine that. Someone who loves and sacrifices and, and chooses humility. That can't be greatness. That's not what greatness looks like. And then I love what Jesus does. He's sitting in the temple courts and he looks around and he sees the people coming into the temple and giving their offerings. And again, this is right before the Passover, so Jerusalem is packed, the temple, lots of people coming through giving their offerings, and the riches and the best are there to give their offerings in the temple. And I'm told that these uh, receptacles for the offering were some kind of cast metal, so probably when they would, especially the wealthy, when they would throw in their heavy silver and gold coins, it would make a loud noise. Everybody would notice the, the great offerings that they gave. So they're coming through and they're giving the offerings one after the other, and as Jesus watches this, this widow, it says a poor widow, a woman who had been the least of the least in that culture, somebody who didn't have a man to represent her in that culture meant she was somebody who had no power, no protection. She was someone who had no money, no wealth. And says that woman comes through and she threw in these two little copper coins. They're called lepta. They were the smallest currency of that time. And we're told the word lepta actually means thin ones. So again, very light, little, thin copper coins. And she threw in her two little, thin copper coins, her two thin ones. Sure didn't even make a sound compared to the sound of all those other offerings. And he calls his disciples over and he uses it as a teaching moment, a moment to help them develop kingdom of God kind of vision. He says, do you notice here who gave more? The ones who threw in those coins of those loud announcements as those coins are given, or the one who threw in those two little thin ones that were everything she had. Which is more? Is more to powerful and prestigious and wealthy and possession and privilege? Or is more faithful obedience? Which is more? Which is a more complete life? Which is more valuable? Who had the best to give and gave the best? How do you define more? Again, as I thought about it, I thought a lot of times I think the best I have to give is when I can do the things that impress the most and then I can use those things for God in some way. I think anything I have to give, that I give out of faithful obedience and out of love for my God, It is a good gift. It is more. The cool thing is, whatever we have to give, whatever our resources, whatever our talents, whatever our abilities, whatever our time, whatever we have to give is good if it's given out of love for our God and love for our neighbors. Whatever we have to give, whatever we give out of faithful obedience and out of love, it's a good gift. It doesn't matter how it compares who has more in the sense of they possess more, it doesn't matter. In God's eyes, if you really understood more, it's the faithful obedience that's behind it. It's the love that drives it. That's what makes this something valuable. Do you really believe that's the life of more? 
Is that the life you pray for your kids? Is that the life you seek for yourself? Is that what you hope for your neighbors? That life of more? Do you really believe that's the path to a complete and full life? As I read this week, I thought, I'm not sure I do all the time. I'm not sure that that's honestly the way I think. That that path is truly the path to life. To lose my life is to find it. That's the path to more. As I was thinking about this church this week, uh, one of the things that struck me was I thought, actually, I think a lot of people do get it. I was very encouraged as I thought about our church. Not because we do everything right by any means, or not because we do things better than other churches in town. But I thought about our church and many of the individuals that I see in this church and what they do. I thought, I do see people who sometimes understand what more is. Really do seem to embrace that. A few weeks ago, I was invited to an elders meeting for something. And when I went home, I was telling my wife, I said, you know, it was so good to go. I don't, I don't go to elders meetings all the time. I avoid any meetings I don't have to go to. So, but I had to go to this one. Uh, and I, I went home and told him, I said, man, it was just so encouraging. It was so encouraging to sit in this room and hear this group of men discuss issues and just hear their love for God and hear their love for the people of our church. Just hear their faithfulness in carrying out that position that God's placed them in, not for themselves, but for God and for the people of this church. I said, I just left encouraged by that. I don't like going to meetings, but that one left me encouraged. Every month I go to deacons' meetings, and, uh, and I go to meetings with our community outreach team. And man, I almost always leave those things encouraged. I'm encouraged by seeing groups of people who honestly want to use the resources they've been given, the resources we have as a church, to love well the people of our church and the people of this community. I love seeing that. That's, that is a life of more, and I think some people are getting that. Um, if you walk the halls on an average Sunday morning, you see people in children's rooms. Uh, it's a job that I don't envy and don't really want. Uh, but I watch those people faithfully carrying out that job, loving children well, a job that isn't a job of prestige, isn't a job that's necessarily going to get a lot of attention, but loving children well and faithfully teaching them God's word and caring for them. And I think, man, they get it. They kind of get that that's the life of more. Walk the halls sometime and look at some of those people doing those jobs. People come in during the week and do things like buff floors out here in the church or fix our computers or people fold bulletins uh, here every week. People meet together in a room to pray before the service. I wish person after person after person come in and say, I faithfully want to serve God and love his bride, the church, so that we might have a a gospel presence in this community. They get it. I see the way this church gives to things. The last two years, uh, we've, we've raised funds to help build a habitat house. Families that you guys, most of you never meet, never know. Yet in the last two years, you guys have given over $10,000 for each of two houses. And then over 50 people this year show up to help build those houses on Saturdays, uh, to swing hammers, even if they've never swung hammers. Love seeing that. People kind of get it. That's a life of more. I love seeing people out in the garden in the corner of our property. They go out there on Sunday afternoons and they work in that little garden. I hate gardening. Uh, there's nothing about it I enjoy. I know you all think it's a, a lot of you think it's, you know, this freeing experience. You didn't grow up with my dad and his garden. I hate gardening. Uh, but I watch them out there every week. No one's paying attention to that, right? 
No one's running out there to praise them for doing that. But they faithfully do that and give that produce away every week to people they'll probably never know and never meet so that people can have fresh, good, healthy produce. You kind of get it. Go out to Gardenville every month and watch the group of people out there, a huge group that gathers to go out there to love on the residents in Garden Villa. They kind of get it. Uh, you watch the way people give to missions. Again, people around the world you'll never meet, many of them you'll never hear of. But sacrifice, and I see people in this church sometimes make huge sacrifices to give that the word of God might go to other places of the world. Love that. I think you get it. I'm someone as a pastor, I've always struggled. I've always struggled to ask people to give more when there's financial need or to do more when there's need for help. I struggle with that. I struggle with imposing upon people and feel like I'm pushing you to do something you don't want to do. As I was reading this passage this week, though, the thing that struck me is um, I need to get over that. I need to get over that because, honestly, you, we all need to be asked to choose the life of more because it is, it is the life that we're meant for. It's the life we're called to, to give more, to do more, to sacrifice more, to be people who join into this life of self-giving love. It is the life of our ruler, of our God. It is the kind of rule he has exhibited for us. It's the good, true life. To join that is to be people who give. So I want to call you more to give. I want you to give of your money, of your time, of your resources. Give of your love. Give of your talents. Give. Give to your God, faithfully and obedient. Give to your neighbor, whoever that neighbor may be. That's the path to more. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful that we, that we have a God who, who wants to extend his love. A God who is so self-giving, so loving, so concerned for the other, that you would even send your son to live and to die for us. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand uh, that that is life. It's the life we're made for, the life we're called to, and the life that will truly give us life. I pray, Father, that as a church and as individuals, we would be people who, who love you with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our strength and with all our mind. And we would be people who love our neighbor as ourselves. In your blessed name, amen.